Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisory Practice Podcast based on projections, episode 38. I'm your host, Pavel Braminski, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com slash podcast. Now, let me introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Eric Puerto. As National Chief Compliance Officer, Eric is responsible for maintaining and strengthening IDC WINS compliance programs and initiatives. Eric has 24 years of experience in the life insurance industry and has worked steadily to build IDC WINS compliance programs while maintaining a pro-business environment. This has established IDC One as a respected industry leader in compliance and has helped IDC One achieve top compliance score rankings for the last five years in the Investment Executives Insurance Advisor Report Card Survey. Eric is also a compliance, a D compliance chair, legislative affairs for Kelba, Canadian Association of Independent Life Brokerage Agencies, where he participates in numerous insurance industry working groups and committees, which help shape the direction of compliance in the life insurance industry. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pavel. Good to be here. Eric, I'm very excited to have you on a podcast today. We'll talk, of course, we'll talk about compliance, but uh, you know, tell me first about the firm you're with. So tell me about IDC WEN and also about your role as a National Chief Compliance Officer. What do you do and who do you serve? Sure. So we are a large national managing general agency representing well over 20 insurance carriers across Canada. I shouldn't say representing, but we have contracts that we offer to our advisors for over 20 insurance carriers across Canada. I am, as the chief compliance officer, I do uh, run the compliance aspect of it. And really, my goal is to help our advisors adapt to compliance, do what's required, but we always take a progressive and pro-business approach to it. So we want compliance to complement your business. We want advisors to be operating safely. We want them to be able to successfully pass all industry audits that they are susceptible to so that they can continue the wonderful work they do for Canadians across this country. Wonderful. I've noticed the the high rankings and the the investment executive insurance scorecard. So so we'll come back to this. That's uh, definitely something to be proud of. But, uh, you know, let's maybe start first with just a little bit about your background. So how how did you start in this industry? What uh, really led you to where you are today? Sure. I mean, going uh, way back, I guess almost 25 years now, I've been licensed in the industry. I came into this industry, like a lot of advisors do, curious about uh, what it entailed and the opportunities, and I quickly found myself uh, enjoying it. I enjoyed working with clients, studying the different products, learning the different strategies. So it is a very uh, you know, unique opportunity that we have as advisors, uh, independent advisors, to be able to reach out to consumers, help them, uh, help them understand what they don't understand and, and assist them with all aspects of protection, accumulation, retirement planning. So I've, I've always loved this aspect of the industry and the independence of it. And we at IDC World Source Insurance Network really do cherish that and we want to uphold the advisor's independence. So it's the advisor first, the advisor's brand, 
And, and we seek to support that independence, mainly because we think this is what best serves Canadians, that their advisor has full choice and full option and can do what's best, what's in the client's best interest. Perfect. So let's talk a little bit about compliance. So as the compliance officer and also as a member of an numerous industry compliance and regulatory working groups, let's maybe start about what would you say is the main sort of direction and, and frankly, the push of compliance today, right? Before we get to those questions about, you know, what do I need to do to, to be compliant? Let's talk about the, the direction of, of compliance and what is the push of compliance today? How, how do you think about that? What do you see right now? Sure. The main thrust of compliance today, and some of your listeners, Pavel, will have heard of this already and, and some have not, but within the coming 12 months, most advisors will become very familiar with this term called fair treatment of consumers. This is something that has come out of the Canadian Council of Insurance Regulators, which is known as the CCIR. And the CCIR is not a regulator itself, but they are a college of the provincial regulators. So, you know, a very strong voice. And they have embraced the insurance core principles, which was released by the International Association of Insurance Supervisors. And they have taken these insurance core principles, uh, which are 26 of them, and, you know, adapted them to the Canadian marketplace. Of particular focus is ICP, so insurance core principle number 18 and number 19, that is particularly relevant here in Canada. So, ICP 18, I'll, I'll just read the, the, the one sentence here, relates to intermediaries. And when they talk about intermediaries, they're talking about insurance companies, advisors. So the intermediary between the, the uh, that deals with the consumers. So ICP 18 states that the supervisor, and when they use the term supervisor, because you under, have to understand this is global terminology, the supervisor sets and enforces requirements for the conduct of insurance intermediaries in order that they conduct business in a professional and transparent manner. So this is uh, one of the directives that's come out of the IAIS in terms of what uh, they feel intermediaries, how they feel intermediaries should be conducting themselves in the insurance marketplace of each country. ICP number 19 relates to conduct of business, and it states the supervisor, again, the regulator, requires that insurers and intermediaries in their conduct of insurance business treat customers fairly, both before a contract is, contract is entered into and through to the point at which all obligations under a contract have been satisfied. So in a nutshell, if you look at these two insurance core principles, this is what our Canadian regulators have, have decided to put focus on. Really uh, a push on treating consumers fairly and understanding that our industry and the products we sell, unlike perhaps the securities industry, the products we sell are usually lifetime-based products. So the regulators feel very strongly that it's important that these contracts are serviced and backed up right until fruition, which is sometimes through the life and until the until the client passes on. Uh, so it's a big responsibility, and you can see how the regulators would place a lot of emphasis on it. Interesting. So I, I'm going to ask a question about those principles, because you mentioned there's 26 of them, and we really focused here on just 18 and 19. What other principles are out there, and why do you think uh, regulators chose to really focus? I mean, you just explained a little bit about that, but why regulators actually just really wanted to focus on the 18, 19? Is there, is there just you know specific uh, reason for, for focusing on those principles at this time? 
time, or is this basically is this a global phenomenon? Is this what's happening also in different mar- other markets, or this is just kind of, kind of more Canadian, I guess, uh, flavor and focus? Well, it's a very good question, and I think it, the answer to your question would be that, of course, the IAIS consists of, uh, I believe, over 180 countries. And each country's insurance marketplace is slightly different. For for example, if you look in the U.S. market, there would be, first of all, it's a much broader market in that the top insurance company, I believe, only owns or controls about 3% of the premium. In Canada, you see much more of a concentrated marketplace between the top four or five insurance companies. But also in Canada, contrary to some other countries, the captive agency system has really kind of faded away and been replaced by the independent channel. So the days where most advisors or a Canada Life Advisor or a Sun Life Advisor or London Life Advisor, those still exist. But predominantly, we see Canada moving towards a a more independent uh, type of distribution channel. I believe, and of course, this isn't going to be an accurate quote, but I I believe well over 60% of the insurance premium in Canada is distributed by managing general agencies now. Mm -hmm. So that would give you an idea of the volume of business that is done by the truly, you know, not captive uh, independent uh, advisor channel. And because of that, you know, there is a, you, you can see how if insurance companies, you know, if I, like I started my career at North American Life as a North American Life advisor, my business card said North American Life representative. And if all I was doing as an advisor is distributing North American Life products, and I worked in, in that North American Life office, it's easy to see how, you know what, fair treatment of consumers relating to policy service and things like that uh, would not be as much of a concern. In the independent channel, if you have an advisor who's perhaps dealing with five or six different insurance companies, and those insurance companies perhaps you know don't have a face-to-face first-name relationship with that advisor, you can see how the regulators would want to emphasize both to the insurance company and the MGA and the advisor that, you know, we would like to see emphasis put on fair treatment of consumers. Now, let me just pause there and say that we can point out many examples where consumers in Canada right now are treated very fairly. So this is not to say that that this is a, you know, a blemish or a, a glaring problem in the Canadian marketplace. It's not. The regulators are not by any means, you know, ringing the fire bell here saying we have a huge problem, we have to fix it. They're just saying that, yes, there are plenty of good news stories, but obviously with any industry, there can be some issues and problems. And they just want to further highlight the fact that this is an initiative. It's a very good initiative. And they'd like to see players across the industry start thinking in terms of, okay, here's what we already do to ensure fair treatment of consumers. We may not have framed it under that title, but now that we have a title, we are aware that there's certain things we do that are very good for consumers. And here's perhaps some blind spots that we have to look at and see what we can do to improve. Makes sense. Okay. Thank you very much for explaining this. This makes a lot of sense. Okay. So I think we're ready to actually move to the big question here, really, and start talking about what does an advisor need to do and really have in place to be compliant today? So how would you answer this question? Sure. And I and I love this question, Pavel, because the, you know, in the past, there has been a lot of ambiguity. There has been a lot of angst amongst advisors where they knew they had to be doing things, but quite honestly, it wasn't exactly clear what they had to do. Uh, we are in a principles-based 
compliance environment, unlike the securities side of the industry, which is rules-based. So in a principles-based environment, you know, doing the right thing for clients, well, what does that mean exactly? So for a lot of advisors, it was there was a, a period where, you know, things were not in clear focus and, and that created some anxiety. Today, I'm happy to report, and that's one thing we really emphasize in our firm, is we want to make it absolutely clear for advisors, look, this is what you need to do to be compliant. Here are the different entities and authorities that can audit your practice. And if you have these elements in place, you're going to be fine. Also, it's not just to satisfy the auditing authorities, such as regulators and FinTrack and CLHIA member carriers. There's also your E&O company. You know, if you fall upon, you know, a, a claim sometime during your career, uh, these compliance elements that you have in your practice will only make it um, easier for the E&O company to represent you in a claim because they know your files are in order and your practice is in order. And thirdly, you know, this is just good compliance. Compliance, and you and I discussed this, good compliance equals good production and good service to consumers. So, you know, there's a lot of good reasons that advisors are moving towards compliance now, again, because it helps them satisfy audit requirements helps them, you know, defend themselves or represent themselves properly if an E&O claim occurs and, and it helps them treat consumers well. So now what's required? So there's two main areas in an advisor's business that they have to focus on compliance. The first area is your practice. So is your practice compliant? And by that, I mean, do you have the required compliance manuals in your practice? And there's three manuals that I focus on. So number one, obviously, you have to fulfill the Proceeds of Crime, Money Laundering, and Terrorist Financing Act, which specifically names insurance brokers as one of the reporting entities to FinTrack. And by reporting entity, it means you are, you know, a professional who is, who is accountable to this act. And therefore, you have to have an AML, an anti-money laundering compliance regime in your practice. So this, this compliance regime, and I kind of, you know, it's, it's rather than pull punches, Pavel, I say to advisors, this is a document or a booklet that should make a thud when it hits the table. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as many advisors say, hey, I have a statement, a one-page statement that says I adhere to, to uh, AML legend. No, no, that's not a manual. You have to have a manual in your practice. And the good news is that manual consists of just five key elements. So you have to appoint an anti-money laundering compliance officer in your practice. If you're a one-man or a one-woman show, that's that can be you. It's fine. But you do have to make that designation in writing. So it has to be present, signed, and dated within your manual. Okay. So I caution advisors that, you know, you're, if you're audited by a FinTrack auditor and they ask who's your compliance officer, you can't just kind of look sideways and say, well, I guess that's me. They do want to see it documented on paper. Number two, you have to have written compliance policies and procedures on how you and your staff, if you have staff, detect, deter, and report instances of money laundering. So 
These can be very, very simple tools, checklists, things like that, that you do in your practice. For example, at IDC, we have a new business checklist. And this checklist prompts advisors on what's what information they have to collect on a client, if that's a, a individual or if it's a corporate entity, what they have to have in order to fulfill their AML requirement in terms of identification of that client or that corporate entity. Um, so this checklist is really a, a cautionary checklist because too many advisors will rely on the insurance company's application to tell them what they should collect and not collect. And we have experienced in the past where some insurance companies did not update their applications in alignment with updated legislation. So for example, one insurance company, and obviously I'm not going to use names here, uh, on one of their applications, they did not ask for the client's occupation. They only asked for the client's employer name. And that would be cited as a minor infraction in a FinTrack audit because the legislation is clear. Just to say you work at Bell Canada or IBM, is not sufficient. We need to know in what capacity. Are you an engineer? Are you a software analyst? What are you? So uh, the checklist would show the FinTrack auditor that uh, this advisor does not rely exclusively on an insurance company's application, where let's face it, where insurance companies still print paper applications. I know many of them are moving to electronic, but with paper applications, sometimes the advisor has an old one and it hasn't been updated or the carrier hasn't gotten around to updating. So these are examples of the second requirement of an AML compliance regime that you have written policies and procedures. And fortunately, there's good templates out there. We offer a very good template for our advisors so they can literally go through it. And, and you do have to go through it to customize it. You know, I joke with advisors that don't don't just print it and write your name at the top. There, there are things you have to go through and edit and customize and make it your own. So one of my questions was actually, I was going to ask you about templates, right? Because because I understand that advisors don't have to really start uh, developing those manuals from scratch. So you mentioned templates, which is great. The follow-up question to that is, you know, how much time really does it take for an advisor to look at those templates and customize those templates to their business? Is this, you know, a couple of hours experience? Is this, you know, from your experience, you know, as you're dealing and working with advisors, yeah. is this couple of days? Is this weeks, months? You know, what is the what is sort of the process here and how much work is there really for an advisor to do? So, uh, you know, this is uh, something the advisor would turn into a process, you know, to go over their manual for the first time and customize it, I would say a couple of hours. And I say to advisors as well, and, and this is really, Pavel, why, you know, I enjoy what I do because I come from an advisor background. I'm not just a compliance person who put on a shirt and tie and, and, and knows the rules, but doesn't know the real world experience of applying those rules from an advisor perspective. So because of that experience, I, I say to advisors, quite frankly, the first time you go through your AML manual and design it and customize it, you're not going to feel like you understand 100% of it. And that's fine. This is, I use the, the word progressive a lot with compliance. Rome wasn't built in a day. You know, complete your manual. You may still have questions. It's like when you were in college or university and you're reading a textbook and the textbook states, you know, you should breeze through this chapter first, you'll retain 20% of it, then come back and read it more thoroughly. So this is the learning process. 
So on a first go over, I would say a couple of hours. And each time the advisor reviews it or goes over it, you know, it'll become clearer and clearer. And and on that point, I, I do, you know, have to use another P word, which is process. I tell advisors to resist the temptation to take your template, customize it, get it done, and then throw it in a drawer and don't look at it for a year because that is a pitfall. You're going to forget on the second day what it said. You're not going to revisit it. And this is one concept I tell advisors in terms of giving them advice, which is, you know, this is not the securities industry or the mutual fund industry where you have to do two or three hours of compliance a day, but you certainly need to be doing more than zero hours of compliance a week. And and I say that facetiously, but there's a lot of advisors, Pavel, let's face it, in our industry where they haven't been burdened by compliance in their careers. And now sometimes they complain and say, I'm being told I have to do this and that. And it's like, I say, yeah, you know, you're complaining because you never had to do any compliance. But if you devote an hour a week to it as a start, you're going to start to realize it's not that hard. And it's good to keep updating yourself and reviewing things. And it'll become a process and it'll be much easier for you. But, you know, it's better you hear it from a friend. If you still think compliance should cost you zero time and zero money, you're going to have a problem. Right. Okay. So we have the templates. We've customized the template. We have the, the manual in place, the ML compliance regime in place. What else is out there for us to to know to to know that we are we are going to be compliant if there's an audit, for example. Sure. So the second major manual in your practice would be your privacy manual, and this is again legislatively required. It's a you know privacy law is is very strict, and unlike anti money laundering, which some advisors will feel like, what does this have to do with me? Privacy is a topic that's on many consumers' minds. We hear about privacy breaches. Um, it's just been going at an accelerated exponential rate in over the past five years. Mm-hmm. So again, an advisor must have, you know, as an advisor in this industry, you collect more private information on consumers than any other business in the world. You collect their health information that sometimes only their doctor knows. You collect financial information that only their accountant knows. And you collect identity the information that only CRA knows. So this is what I call a triple threat. You'd be hard-pressed to think of another industry in the world that has those three categories of information on a consumer. And your task is to protect that information and to gain consent to collect that information and store it. So privacy consent forms are a big deal, and you cannot rely on the insurance carrier's applications to give you that right and power. So it's, it's very important. And your privacy manual, again, it consists of five key elements. It will, you have to name a privacy officer. You have to develop written policies and procedures on how you collect, retain, share, and protect consumer information. You have to do a documented risk assessment of your practice, which is, I think it's kind of a fun topic. You, you get to think like a criminal and say, okay, if I was an information thief, how easy could I get to your practice? How easy could I gain access to private information? And you, you look at that from the very mundane, which is locks on your office, locks on your cabinets, clear desk policies at the end of the day, cybersecurity, things like that. And number four, you have to engage in ongoing training for you and your staff in terms of, again, how you fulfill your policies and procedures. And number five, you have to review your regime once every two years. So it's the same five requirements as an AML manual. But with privacy, I feel it's a little closer to home because 
many advisors are hard pressed to think of how, you know, they might be dealing with a money launderer, but they hear about breaches every day. And it's one of the things that can really affect your practice. So not only is it uh, important for you to do this, but it gives you peace of mind too, to say, you know what, and to tell your clients, look, Pavel, if you become my client, um, I do adhere to the principles of, 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 of Pivota. And here's how we uh, protect your information. We only share it with companies you decide to do business with. And I think from a consumer perspective, that's a positive message these days. So that's the second requirement uh, in terms of having a compliant practice. Okay, excellent. And I fully agree, actually, uh, in terms of the privacy, because, uh, I mean, that's, you, you can actually use this very positively. Probably. We'll talk about you know, how, how compliance can actually be helpful for you in, in, in not only just protecting your business, but actually growing your business. And, and I have a couple questions around it for you. We'll get to it soon. But, you know, especially with uh, with privacy, I think that can be actually very helpful to to increase trust you know, your clients have in you and really differentiate yourself uh, further in, in the market. Are there any other practice manuals uh, that we need to have in place? Or is there anything else? The third manual, and, and again, this is partially from advisor reconnaissance and experience, because advisors will come to me saying they've been selected for audit by Fisco or their provincial uh, regulator in Ontario, that would be FISRA going forward now. And they'll tell me what the auditor was looking for. So very often they report to me that the auditor looks for a general compliance manual. And again, this is just more from a general industry focused perspective, you know, to be able to show the regulator that my staff and myself, we understand the rules and regulations of our industry. And here's how we operate. We engage in uh, needs-based selling, just having all the different uh, aspects of how you function as a practice. So that would be the third manual, just a general compliance manual. And again, we, we have templates for that. Excellent. Okay. So we have manuals in place. Is there anything else <laughs> that we need to fulfill in terms of to be compliant? So that's that pretty much closes the loop for your practice in terms of having the required manuals. The second main area of compliance is your client files. And from a real world practicality standpoint, you know, when an auditor walks into your practice, to your office, this is the two things they're going to want to see. Now, some audits will focus on one area or the other, but you want to be prepared for everything. So after they look at your compliance manuals and realize, okay, this, this advisor understands their obligations, they have the required um, procedure manuals in place, now they'd like to pull a few client files. And what are they going to look for in those files? Well, they're going to look for a lot more than just a photocopy of an application, which unfortunately, some advisors, you know, who still operate like they did decades ago, that is probably sometimes what they have in their practice, in their client file. But for a perfect client file, you want to have something that's called the approach. And the approach was developed by CLHIA in consultation with advocates and IFB and Kielba. And it highlights the seven client file elements, the seven compliance elements that, you, that an advisor should have in each client file. And I, I know maybe that sounds a little bit scary, but again, use the, that word progressive if you're audited and you have four elements in your file and it's a very simple type file, you're probably going to be okay. But again, we we look at what the ideal file is and ideally it does have the seven required elements. So I'll just quickly go through those. Let's do this, yeah. Yeah, so the first is advisor disclosure. And this has been a requirement for quite some time. And advisor disclosure is just disclosing to the client right up front. Uh, this is who I am. These are the companies I am contracted with to distribute product. Here's how I'm paid. Here's 
here's how I handle conflicts of interest. Now, our disclosure template on the back of it, it also has a privacy consent form for the client to go through, realize what you're going to do with the data. And again, you know, visiting that privacy topic, Pavel, this, this is a very important issue these days. If you look at the most recent privacy legislation, they're looking for specific and meaningful consent. So it's not just, can I have all your data? It's, this is the type of data I'm collecting. These are the entities I'm going to share it with. If I work with a client manager software or a client analytics software, these softwares these days are no longer just in a box that reside on your hard drive. They're internet-based. So that data is going somewhere and you want to get this type of consent from clients. So that's an important part of of this disclosure process too, in my opinion. Uh, Number two, you have to have some type of a document that shows the regulator that you are managing client expectations. And we call this the engagement letter. So the engagement letter is something that you can give to the client. It tells the client very clearly what you do and also what they need to do because it's a two-way street. So some advisors ask me, you know, what's the difference? There seems to be no difference between disclosure and engagement. No, there is. Disclosure tells the client, this is who you are. This is how you work. But the engagement letter says, Mr. Client, here's how we're going to work together. Is my business model acceptable to you? And regulators love this. And you can imagine why, because it disarms misunderstandings before they occur. You know, a simple example, maybe the client thought you were going to reach out to them quarterly to do a review. And meanwhile, you only do a review as necessary or once a year. This is something that can be clearly outlined in your engagement letter so that both parties are aware. And when both parties are aware, future conflicts are are less likely. So that's number two. Number three is you have to have fact finding, some evidence that you've engaged in an exploratory process where you have sought to collect client information, understand their information, ask them questions, and uh, get a better understanding of what this family or this business requires. So that naturally leads into number four, which is needs assessment. So, you know, you're my you're my prospect, Pavel. I've gone through this uh this fact-finding process, we've now identified certain gaps in your financial model that need to be addressed and quantified. So now I pull out my financial needs analysis form or my you know, capital needs worksheet, and we seek to quantify that need. So perhaps you have, I've identified you probably have a shortfall in life insurance, and I'll pull out my needs assessment. We will quantify that very clearly, talk about it, and then you as a consumer might want to move forward with the entire recommendation or part of the recommendation. And I, as the advisor, would clearly notate that on my financial needs assessment because just because I my our needs assessment shows you need 1.7 million, at this point in time, you might decide to buy a million. That's not against the law. You're the consumer. But it's important for me as the advisor to say, that's very good, Pavel. That's a million more than you had before. But here, we'll just outline the shortfall. And maybe we'll notate, we're going to address this uh, at a subsequent meeting next year, see if we want to uh, further close that gap. So that's an example of a needs assessment. If if you were working with the client on a retirement basis and they had a shortfall in retirement, you might pull out a retirement worksheet if you were assessing the risk profile. So these needs assessments, they tend to be metrics-based and mathematical-based, unlike a fact finder, which is usually just a collection of information. So number five, 
is recommendations and advice. So I've gone through my process. We've explored your needs. We've decided to focus on certain areas right now. And here is my proposal or my recommendations. From there, you as the consumer would decide to implement some of it, all of it, or none of it. And But whatever you do implement, you would then we would then proceed to the application process. And no later than when you take delivery of the product, you I would give you something called a reason why letter. And I'll, I'll just take a, a break here from this from the seven requirements, Pavel, and say a lot of these requirements, your advisors, your your listeners will be hearing this saying, well, I know that I use a financial needs analysis. I use a disclosure, hopefully they do. But this is just kind of tying it all together in one neat package. And the newest thing in this package is the reason why letter. It was only, uh, you know, stipulated as a requirement a short time ago. But in my opinion, it is a very good requirement because it's a one or two page layman's terms letter that says, Pavel, this is how we arrived at this point. We got together, we reviewed your needs. You said this, I said that, I recommended this, you chose that. By the way, when you chose that, we replaced something you were doing before, which wasn't good. And this does this, which is better. And if you have any questions, give me a call. So I'm just paraphrasing here, but that's what a reason why letter is. And it's so important. And I think it's so good because it makes both the advisor and the client think and understand, why did I buy this? Because we know from a fair treatment of consumers perspective, three months after someone buys a product, they forget what it is, why they bought it or what it's doing for them. And that's not a good FTC outcome. So the reason why letter is is something the regulators uh, do want to see. And the last thing, the seventh requirement is... Is, uh, product information, some type of evidence, you know, an illustration, a brochure, something in terms to verify what you provided to the client to help them make their decision. So those, uh, I guess I'll stop talking now. <laughs> those, <laughs> those are the seven requirements. I just wanted to get those out. And, and let me just say as well, you, you might have questions around this, but many, I've seen many advisors who have designed three or four of these steps into one booklet. You know, they have their fact-finding booklet, which includes pages for needs analysis, for life insurance, retirement shortfalls, calculations, things like that. So that's perfectly fine uh, for an advisor to not have seven individual pieces. The regulator just wants to see that the seven kind of steps were followed. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's not like that we have, you know, those three manuals and we need additional seven other manuals to really make sure that every uh, single client file is compliant, but we just have to basically uh, address those elements. And it could be, you know, it could be, as you said, combined in different booklets. Okay, perfect. So so this makes a lot of sense. And I was listening intently. And as I was listening, uh, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense to have all those components, not just from purely from a compliance perspective, from the regulation perspective, but also from the good business practices, right? You mentioned engagement letter. We have, like, we are going to explain what we are going to do with this client, this, this particular engagement. Then we have the reason why closer to the end a letter and that letter sort of closes the gap for us, right? Because here is the, you know, here's the disclosure. This is what I do. This is what I'm going to do for you. There's a couple of steps in the, in, in the meantime. Of course, of course, there's recommendations and advice and the reason why a letter at the end, which is sort of closing that, uh, that aspect. So I can see that actually that's going to make the, the conducting the business for advisor easier, right? Yeah. And, and easier, but also it opens the door to the next step in the process process. So the reason why letter at the end of it, it may contain a statement to say, you know, Pavel, we we talked about critical illness insurance. 
you indicated you would be concerned if, if you had a major medical event, uh, you would be concerned for your family's finances. So, you know, I'm going to uh, follow up with you in the next several weeks. Uh, so there's there a good reason why letter and there's there's good templates available, but we'll we'll have a call to action for the next step because a, a person's financial model is never done entirely. And I think the nice thing about and, and why the regulators like the reason why letter is it gets rid of that, you know, one and done phenomena, which kind of tends to happen in our industry where an advisor will meet with a family, do one product and then just go away. Right. And the reason why letter will highlight, okay, here's what still needs to be done. And, you know, you and I decided, Pavel, that now's not a good time, but you would like to revisit that in January my office will be reaching out to you at that time. So it's a very nice business continuity type letter that many advisors report has, has led to more business flow. Excellent. So, right. So this is actually moving, helping advisors moving away from this kind of transactional environment to, you know, here's the relationship and this is how I'm going to serve you over a longer period of time. Perfect. So, so I think we're just through a, even this conversation right now, I think we're just uh, sort of dispelling some of the myths that uh, some advisors may even feel that, uh, you know, compliance is maybe a necessary evil, right? That, that certain things need to be done just to make my life as an advisor more difficult. But no, I mean, things need to be done because regulators require that. But also, this is also good for the business, right? And I, I know, I mean, I noticed very early in our conversations that you have a very firm belief that good compliance can contribute to good good business as well and, and, and production, as you mentioned earlier. Is there anything else to it? Is there anything else that you would want to add to on this topic? In terms of the requirements of a client file or? In terms of the just compliance is good for not just uh, making sure, of course, that you're compliant, but it's also good for your business and, and for, for production. Oh, yeah, for sure. And really, the experience I like to relate to in, in that aspect is that Whichever market segment you're dealing with, whatever niche clientele you're dealing with, maybe you're dealing with engineers, maybe you're dealing with entrepreneurs, uh, restaurant owners, you know, be aware that uh, perhaps lawyers or doctors, be aware that their own industries, you know, there, there's, a, I guess, a, a surge of compliance happening in all industries, not just ours. You know, we live in, an, in, a, in, a, in a time now where the rights of the individual, you see it in the media every day, the rights of the individual have become paramount. And so, you know, when, when you're taking out these forms and going through them with clients, you don't have to be apologetic. Most clients will respect the fact that, you know, you have a process, you're taking notes during your meetings. If you go to meet with a lawyer, what do you see? You, you usually see their head down, they're taking notes as, as, as you speak. So this is something that, you know, contrary to years ago, where I would often hear an industry veteran say, no, I don't, I don't go in with any paperwork or anything. I just talk to people. Well, that's, that's good. But again, conversations can be lost and forgotten. So this kind of uh, itemized approach to meeting with clients, uh, if anything, they respect an advisor. Their respect does not diminish. It, it goes up. And in all aspects, I can think of instances where advisors said I was in a competitive situation for a client's life insurance business. And the advisor said, uh, the clients told me I was the only advisor of the three who had this huge, this needs analysis that could quantify their, their, their need for insurance. The client said the other two advisors were just talking in broad numbers, like a million dollars, 500,000, things like that. 
So that won the case for her. So there's there's so many examples. I you know I can think of other advisors who use something. We we have an offering for advisors called uh, NPC, mm-hmm. which used to stand for No Panic Computing, but it is a cybersecurity company that advisors can lease cybersecurity equipment. It could be an individual laptop. But it is fully encrypted, has full data destruction protocols if the device is lost or stolen. And one of the things this service comes with is a badge that the advisor can post on their website or on their their materials. And it just shows that the advisor uses this and pays for this very, uh, I guess, industry-leading cybersecurity solution. And for, for an advisor to, to meet with a prospective client or to be referred to a client and to say, by the way, just so you know, my staff and I take your privacy and, and cybersecurity very seriously, and we use the best solution money can buy. We've taken no shortcuts. This is the company we use. You can research, look at them on the internet, but we think your data and the privacy and confidentiality of it is important enough that we have spared no expense. And think about it for a lot of clients. Yeah, you know what, that's important to them. So in so many ways, Pavel, you can point to the fact where compliance these days is synonymous with professionalism. Excellent. Okay. Wow. We've covered uh, a lot of ground today so far. So a couple of questions, Eric, before we wrap up here. What are some of the projects that you're that you're currently working on or thinking about working on over the next you know, six, 12 months that you're most excited about? Is there anything in your world right now? Is there anything happening for your next you know, six, 12 months? Yeah. You know, the I'm pleased to say that the in my role as, as a compliance co-chair for Kelba, I'm happy to say that the the industry is in a very collaborative state right now. The we meet regularly with regulators. We have uh, you know, there's various working groups that I sit on. CLHIA, advocates, IFB. We're we're all gathering at the same tables. And the regulators are listening and they want feedback. They very much recognize us as, as partners in fulfilling these fair treatment of consumers objectives. And I should say that broadly speaking, I'm, I'm very pleased with that because I think in the past years, that's not always been the case. You know, I don't want to say it's been an us against them scenario, but there have been time, you know, times in the past decades where you weren't quite clear, you know, how to dialogue with a regulator or uh, an industry association. But now these uh, these working groups are in full force. So it's very nice to be sitting at tables and, and, and having a say and representing our specific you know, corner of the industry and having the regulators take this feedback from the different entities and shape the industry going forward. So that's that's something I'm very positive and excited about going forward. And I, and I think advisors should be too, because whether an advisor, perhaps uh, your listeners belong to are a member of Advocus or IFB, and, you know, to know that, that you know, the, there are members of these associations and um, lawyers and whatnot who are speaking to the regulators and able to shape compliance in the industry going forward, I think that's a positive message. For sure. For sure. That sounds like uh, great things for the, for the industry. So that's great. So, Eric, uh, this podcast is all about growing your practice. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners? So let's, let's narrow it down to just one thing and one thing about compliance, of course. <laughs> 
I'm not sure I'm a one thing type of person, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, again, from a compliance perspective, in my experience, advisors who have control of their compliance house and have everything in order, they are more productive. They're happier going forward because they don't have these dark fears in the corner of their mind. You know, am I doing things right? Am I prepared? So hopefully, you know, advisors belong to an MGA that's giving them support, that has regular meetings, that they can voice their concerns concerns and their fears and, and find out the tools they need to to put those fears to to rest. Excellent. That's a great advice. So Eric, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, maybe ask you a compliance related question, right? Or something uh, something like that. How would I do that? What's the best way to reach you right now? Sure. Obviously email is always a good way to go. Uh, ewatchtel at idcwin.ca and maybe you'll post that in my phone number as well. 905-366-3866, extension pound 3228. Wonderful. We can add it to the show notes as well. So if anybody has any questions around compliance, uh, they can they can contact you as well. So thank you for that. Eric, that was uh, that was great. I mean, you've shared a lot of uh, a lot of wisdom, a lot of practical wisdom as well, which I really appreciate on compliance. So thanks very much for, for being here with me. Thank you for the opportunity, Pavel. That's it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, I would really appreciate if you left us a great review in iTunes because that helps us get discovered. And if you want to get in touch with us, please email podcast at snapprojections.com. Thanks, and I'll talk to you next time.